What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? Welcome back to the show. Today, we are going to talk psychedelics. Again, I know. But today, we're going to talk about a different angle of this whole story, and that is patents. Something that you might not think would be associated with psychedelic research or psychedelic therapy, but in fact, it is. To help sort through all this and really get to the nuts and bolts of what patents are, how they play a role in this space, my guest today is Graham Pachinik, who is a patent lawyer and the founder of a firm, Calix, which specializes in patents surrounding first cannabis when the cannabis market opened up, but now psychedelic. And you'll hear Graham talk about how he got involved in this, in this field and why he started up his own firm. But he also breaks down for us the nuts and bolts of the patent system. What is it used for? What is it supposed to be used for? How does it play a role in the psychedelic space? And there's a lot of analogies to pharmaceutical companies. You know, as these things are going to be medicalized, they're going to be brought out first in the medical arena. So we've talked about the therapy, psychedelic therapy for depression, PTSD, that kind of thing. That resembles a pharmaceutical drug or treatment. And therefore, the analogies to how pharmaceutical companies use patents is relevant. There's a great article written by Shayla Love, which I will link in the show notes. Shayla was a prior guest on the show a couple years back, and also one of the best reporters on the psychedelic beat. Uh, she was formerly with Vice. She's now a freelance. She wrote this article when she was with Vice, and it really covers a lot of the ways in which the patent system is flawed when it comes to dealing with pharmaceuticals, or rather how pharmaceutical companies can find ways to abuse the patent system. Uh, Graham was a source for that article. He talks about some of those things in this episode, as well as, like I said, helping us understand what can companies patent. How do you patent psychedelic mushrooms if it's a naturally occurring compound? But also, what other things are companies trying to patent? There was a famous example from one of the big players in this industry, Compass Pathways, where they were reported to be trying to patent everything from how the therapy was delivered to what type of room it was delivered in, what kind of furnitures were being used, this kind of thing. And you can see how if a company were to be granted a patent like that, anyone that wanted to provide psychedelic-assisted therapy with the sort of generally agreed upon things that you would want to have, a room with soft lighting and nice furniture and music and this and that, would have to go through them in order to get it. Now, they've been challenged on some of these things and pulled back. I think Compass is actually facing some challenges to their patents of their crystalline form formulations of psilocybin. But that's the other area where um, patents come into play. So you have this, you can patent sub-substances or the ways that you purify substances, all of this, all the way down to methods of delivering therapy. And it's not as regulated as you might think. Again, Graham explains to me, because I was very naive on this, as to just who decides what patents get, get approved and which ones don't. And the answer may be surprising, was definitely surprising to me. He also talks about ways in which people are trying to push back a little bit on this. So there's company, nonprofit companies out there that are trying to supply what's called prior art to the patent office. When a patent gets submitted to the patent office, one of the first things they do is look for what's called prior art. And that's things like previous patents for the same idea or instances of research or data that has been published out there that shows that this idea that someone is attempting to patent is not actually unique. 
that's one of the criteria for for a patentable idea or device or something is that it's unique, that it's novel. So Graham explains to us why it's difficult for patent examiners uh, and the people who approve patents to sometimes get all of that information and why sometimes patents get granted when the ideas aren't totally unique. Really interesting episode, really great conversation. Thank you so much to Graham for agreeing to come on the show, taking time out of his day. Um, and it's definitely an angle that we'll look to to follow up on because like I said, I think it really does, is going to have consequences on how therapy, first and foremost, gets rolled out, like who will have access to it. Uh, I thought it was a great primer on the patent system and how that works uh, and how the psychedelic uh, space is going to resemble the pharmaceutical space. Lots of analogies there. Um, and just, yeah, really, really interesting conversation. So thank you to Graham for coming on the show. And as always, please, please, please rate, subscribe, review, leave a comment, all of those things, wherever you're getting your podcasts, that really helps out our visibility, that really helps us out. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at 2 brad for you. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email, you can send a tweet, you can send a, a message on Instagram, all of that stuff. Please, please reach out. The website is 2bradforyou.wordpress.com. Uh, but most important, subscribe, rate, review, tell a friend, all of that great stuff. That would be really appreciated. And Let's not forget that we are available on the Newsly app as a featured podcast on the Newsly app. Newsly is an all-in-one super app for iOS Android, which picks trending articles on the web from topics that you've chosen and reads them to you in a natural human voice. The entire web becomes listenable for the first time. You've heard me say it before, but all of that stuff that you're doing, everything that you're browsing, everything that you're scrolling through can become listenable. You can listen to all of that stuff, your sports, your science, your celebrity gossip, whatever it is that you're interested in. Uh, it will help you find the latest articles and then read them to you. And then, of course, it curates podcasts. This is the Newsly app. It curates podcasts like ours, which is available on the feature tab of the Newsly app. So you can explore trending podcasts from over 80 countries. We're there, too. Uh, they even have digital radio. So... Download and use Newsly for free from www.newsly.me. That's spelled N-E-W-S-L-Y dot M-E. Or from the link in, this, in the description of this episode, you can use the promo code called 2BRAD, T-W-O-B-R-A-D, capital T-W-O, capital B-R-A-D, all one word, uh, also in the description. And you can get a one-month free premium subscription uh, to the Newsly app. So... Really cool app, reads the internet for you. You don't like reading. That's why you're listening to a podcast. I get it. I do the same. So check out Newsly, www.newsly.me, and get the internet read to you. Stop scrolling. Start listening. And now, my conversation with Graham Pachenik from Calix Law. Graham, thank you so much uh, for joining the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, how are things in San Francisco? Uh, weather is nice or rainy? Uh, no, the weather is nice at the, the tail end of about, uh, gosh, it's almost been a month, I think, of rain until just a few days ago. And now it's been nothing but sun. Um, so that's good. Uh, yeah. And thank you so much for, for having me. It's really a pleasure to, to join you on your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so as we kind of talked about offline, um, 
my audience, I think, is really interested in the psychedelics, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, different news angles kind of happening with that. But one that doesn't get talked about a lot is the issue of patents, um, intellectual property when it comes to this kind of work. So this is your area of specialty. Um, but I thought maybe we could start broad with what is a patent? I'm sure everybody's heard of it, but maybe doesn't understand sort of the mechanics of it and what they're kind of used for. And maybe we can kind of gear this towards, you know, sort of medical patents or pharmaceutical patents, because that is, to my understanding, where the psychedelics are most going to overlap with, most going to fit into. Yeah, and I think largely that's right, although surely we'll see some interesting technologies like ancillary technologies that are covered by, by patents too around things like VR and software mm, and stuff. Mm -hmm. I think in the, in the main, certainly you're right about uh, the fact that the patents are similar largely to sort of pharmaceutical patents and kind of bring in a lot of the concerns around uh, the types of, sort of pharmaceutical patents that are used in the just general pharmaceutical area. Uh, but, but patents, I think... Potentially, the, the reason they're not thought of that much in the sort of area of psychedelics is because most psychedelics are known, at least the ones that are used right now. I mean, certainly there are some that are being developed that are you know, new compounds, new chemicals that you know, perhaps you know, nobody's taken before, nobody's taken outside of the lab that's synthesized them. Um, and so you know, I think the most kind of common sense understanding that people have of something that's you know, a patentable invention is that it's novel and that it's you know something that is worthy of uh, getting uh, a patent on something that you know truly is an invention. And so you know we can get to uh, potentially challenging that view, and we'll see that there's lots of ways of getting patents on uh, even a known drug. But um, just generally, what the patent system is, or what patents are. I mean, so patents basically are a government-granted monopoly um, that covers what it is that's claimed in the patent. Um, so like any other piece of property, the sort of main aspect of it is that it provides an, an exclusive right. So similar to, you know, a house or a car or something else, you know, if you have that piece of property, you have the exclusive right to use it to, you know, to sell to somebody else, to let somebody else borrow it. Um, and so with a patent, it's a government granted monopoly, an exclusive right to whatever that subject matter of that patent is, whatever is claimed by the patent for a period of 20 years. Um, and the reason we have patents, um, they're actually provided for in the constitution, um, is to encourage the type of innovation that sort of underlies the invention that's part of that patent. Um, so it's kind of like an incentive to do inventive activity and a reward for that you know, invention being made. Um, so it's considered a trade-off, basically, between the public that um, sort of grants the exclusive right through the government and the inventor um, for you know bringing something new uh, and inventive to the public. Yeah, and I think people are familiar with it when you think of like technology, like you know, phones or light bulbs or you know things like this, and then the patent runs out, and then anybody can make a, a light bulb can use that design, can use that blueprint to then to then make it. Um, and we can get into the maybe a bit more about, you know, how that how that plays out in the pharmaceutical industry. But I'm curious just a little bit about your sort of backstory and how you got into this 
in terms of because you're a, a lawyer, um, patents are dealt with by lawyers. It's a it's a legal matter, uh, so it's a special field of law. Um, I guess you if. if I would put it that way. You could correct me if it's not. Mm-hmm. If that's not how you would put it. But uh, yeah, how does one go from being a lawyer specializing in patents to then getting involved in this sort of burgeoning psychedelic, you know, movement, and then also the patent patenting side of psychedelics? Yeah. Well, I mean, you are right. So it is, you know, considered a specialized area of the law, and certainly, you know, many lawyers in specific niches would consider themselves in a specialized area, although. Patent law is somewhat unique in that it has an additional bar that one needs to take beyond just taking the state bar. So, you know, for instance, I've taken the state bars in New York where I started in California where I am now, but also to become a practicing patent lawyer, you have to also take the patent bar. Hmm. Um, The other thing that's sort of unique about it is you don't actually have to be a lawyer to take the patent bar. So there are also patent agents who can practice before the patent office um, so they can, you know, draft and submit patents. Uh, argue about whether something should be patented with a patent examiner um, and do everything pretty much that a, a patent attorney can do with you know some exceptions around things that are you know, truly more legal in nature like licenses or mm. when it gets to litigation. Um, and one of the requirements also for being able to even take the patent bar is having a science or technical background. Um, and that's been somewhat controversial because there's you know many areas uh, even technological areas where people are able to get patents, but the um, the people working in that field with the, the normal types of degrees one might have in that field um, wouldn't even be able to sit for the patent bar. Um, but someone does actually have to have a science uh, background. And that's, I guess, how I sort of fell into patent law is because I have a science background. Um, and to sort of connect the dots, I suppose, on how I ended up in, in psychedelic patent law, I mean, the reason I have a science background is... When I was an undergrad, and I had my first psychedelic experiences. Um, they actually sort of drove me to choose the science majors that I that I ended up um, uh, graduating with. So I became very interested in how um, uh, psychedelics sort of affected my consciousness, affected my um, just perceptions, and and also. I became really interested in psychedelics themselves, and I, I found that most of the other few people in a school largely of sort of engineering and, and kind of pre-med majors that were interested in psychedelics tended to sort of cluster in this cognitive science uh, major. So I ended up majoring in cognitive science and, and biochem, thinking, uh, you know, at the time I sort of chose them that maybe I'd pursue a career in, in psychedelics, some sort of psychopharmacology or chemistry. I first came in touch with uh, Alexander Shulgin's books mm-hmm. um, and was you know amazed at the sort of possibilities for um, new sorts of psychedelic drugs um, and then I didn't really receive any encouragement from professors <laughs> that that was actually a career worth Sur- pursuing surprising yeah, <laughs> um, yeah and a, you know a neuroscience professor whose lab I was working in actually um, despite expressing some curiosity around what psychedelics might be like. I'd never done them and thought it would sort of scramble her brain and her ability to, you know, run a lab and and teach classes and sort of suggested that if I was interested in psychedelics, um, maybe drug policy or something would be, you know, a better way of kind of staying in that Hmm. field. So sort of naively, I ended up in law school um, thinking, you know, that could be a, you know, a career to pursue, although with law school loans and the fact that there aren't many paid positions in that or sort of cognitive liberty, which is the other um, kind of academic area of interest I had, where there's maybe one one person who, uh, you know, is is making a living doing it. 
um, ended up getting recruited by by patent law firms because you know having the science background um, and seeing that as sort of a you know a way to pay off my law school loans and despite having in law school uh, actually written my kind of thesis paper on the way patents are used to sort of keep drug prices longer or higher for longer. Um, the sort of first job I had out of law school was working for branded pharma doing pharmaceutical patent litigation, uh, working on exactly that. So <laughs> sort of defending against generics who are trying to bring, um, you know, cheaper copies of drugs to market. Um, and so to sort of end the long story, I mean, I, I, you know, worked for about a decade doing patent work, primarily patent litigation, um, and then kind of got tired of big law firms and the bureaucracy of big law firms and litigation in particular. It's, it's a lot of travel. It's a lot of, uh, you know, staying in hotels, courts and doing depositions and things that are kind of high stress uh, and very long hours. And in 2015, when cannabis was on the ballot in, in, in California for adult use, a lot of friends of mine were thinking about starting cannabis businesses. And I sort of went around to some cannabis uh, business conferences and, and saw that there was a lot of activity which was patentable and and people were either not thinking about patents or had but couldn't find a patent lawyer uh you know sort of given the fact that there's all these requirements to become a patent lawyer and most patent lawyers end up at big firms and big firms at that time didn't really want to deal with cannabis uh <laughs> clients um just given the sort of complications around dealing with uh getting paid by them and you know sort of other kind of ways that big firms are fairly risk averse and so I saw that there was uh, sort of a, a market that I could, you know, kind of uh, enter um, just as a patent lawyer myself, trying to get cannabis uh, companies as, as clients. And so uh, started a firm, the, the firm I have now, really just thinking I would work with cannabis companies. And then, like, I guess it's now almost three years ago, um, seeing the sort of burgeoning of the psychedelics kind of industry, I suppose, or the psychedelic space. Um, saw that there was a lot of work also for psychedelics companies to do um, patent work. And that had continued to be a big interest of mine. So being here and now in the Bay Area, you know, there's quite a big kind of psychedelics culture. Um, and so sort of feeling like I was both part of that and continued to be curious, you know, reading the science. You know, there's been a lot of, despite, you know, I didn't go into psychedelic science. There's been a lot of things since, you know, the 90s and 2000s, obviously, um, that I've, you know, continue to be really interested in. So saw that as a, a really fun place to practice patent law and, you know, and work with companies that are doing really uh, interesting things. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, I suppose, yeah. the sort of way I ended up here. That's, I mean, it's fascinating, you know, that you kind of still ended up in, in this, even though there's like that discouragement of doing it. And I know that there's so many people that probably feel the same way where, had an interest in this thing, but because of the reputation, because of the legality thing, it's like, no, we're not, even in a scientific area, we're not going to, and I think that's just, I don't know, I'm always kind of blown away at, at, at the moment of, um, you know, where we're at, where we can be having these conversations, you know, and, and what is it, I think it was, Oregon just had psilocybin on the ballot for, and I don't know the specifics of what, what actually they, they voted on, but it's like, you know, it's, it's coming the way of, of marijuana, it feels like, where it's like, and even marijuana, you know, to have that, like, legalized in my lifetime. I remember being a high school kid and being like, well, wouldn't it be great if this was legal? But, <laughs> and mm -hmm. now it is. Um, 
But yeah, no, that's really cool. And yeah, back in the Bay Area, that's like the one of the the historical hotspots, right? So there's all that nostalgia and, and culture there. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I doubt I would have been as interested or um, been able to sort of maintain that interest if I, you know, sort of hadn't grown up in this environment. I mean, I you know grew up with parents who weren't really into psychedelics, but, you know, we had Ram Dass's Be Here Now on our coffee table, yeah. and my dad's uh, uh, a Zen Buddhist, and um, certainly we had, you know, plenty of friends who, you know, as adults were, you know, smoking cannabis, and it you know, wasn't something that we were, uh, I think, as, you know, as nervous as we might have been somewhere else to, mm-hmm. you know, to do ourselves, I mean, I was, but, but yeah, I mean, I think times really have changed since then, I mean, so I, you know, I graduated, um, in 2002 from undergrad when I think there weren't that many programs and and now I mean we're just uh we were just out um some members of my firm in in Wisconsin University of Wisconsin Madison where they have a uh, a whole master's program studying basically uh psychedelics um and you know many schools have research programs or uh you know have specific uh you know, teaching programs now. Mm-hmm. It's, uh... it's definitely not the taboo subject that it once was. And, you know, we can, you know, obviously the, the, the work that's being done with, you know, depression and, and by maps and, and PTSD and all this stuff has really, you know, that seems to be the way you can, if you can show some benefit there, uh, you know, you remove that stigma and then you can actually start opening the doors towards wider applications, wider use. But this kind of brings us then back to patents because, again, so we understand how patents kind of work in the, in the sense of a drug, right? Like, so it's very costly for pharmaceutical companies to create drugs or find drugs that work to go through the clinical trials, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why we give them the patents, what you described, you know, it's your your the the carrot on the stick for doing all of that work, right? Then you get to charge what you want for an X amount of years. No one else can make that drug. Um, With psychedelics, we're seeing it go through the similar process of, you know, the, the clinical trials, trying to show a use and stuff like that. But I think what might be a bit confusing is what exactly is being would people be submitting patents for or likely to submit patents for? There's the substance, which I think there's a couple questions around that because you know some of these substances are naturally occurring, psilocybin. So like, how do you how do you patent a plant? Um, LSD, MDMA. I think they've been around for well, you know, since 60s, 70s. So how do you then try and slap a patent on something that's sort of already out of the box? Uh, but then the other side of it is patenting the sort of methods around the therapy. So I think these are the two things that I'm aware of. Um, but let's maybe start with the molecules first. Uh, that might be easier to, to, to sort of dissect. So what are mm-hmm. people looking to patent in this space? Is it the molecules? Are they coming up with new molecules? How is that all? What do you see there? Yeah. And so, you know, you're totally right to point out that most of these drugs are not just known. They've been known for decades or, you know, or centuries. They've been used for just as long. Um, and, of course, the central requirement for a patent is that it covers something that's novel and non-obvious. So, you know, if we take something like psilocybin, of course, it's not novel. 
um, itself as a compound. Um, and the way we can answer this, I think, is by thinking how pharmaceutical companies pursue patents on drugs. Um, and so any pharmaceutical product that's on the market, um, you know, any approved drug will have dozens, if not hundreds of patents that have been applied for and, and potentially granted covering that approved drug. Um, and they're, of course, not all on the compound itself. So the first patents that get filed will probably be on the compound itself. But then there will be you know, tens or dozens or, or hundreds more filed on um, other aspects about the drug. So the, you know, the way the drug is formulated, um, different forms of the, of the drug, um, the way the drug can be delivered to a patient, you know, the routes of administration, how it's dosed, how it's, uh, you know, provided to specific patients, how, um, you know, the drug is given for patients with particular indications. And so there's, you know, a real laundry list of ways that companies can, you know, file these uh, types of patents. And actually, it's quite common in the pharmaceutical industry for something called drug repurposing, which is taking a compound that's already been known and already been patented and potentially already even been approved um, for another indication and filing additional patents that cover it. Um, and so there's a lot of these types of drug repurposing strategies that are being used to uh, file patents on psychedelics. Um, so for instance, with psilocybin, the most sort of well-known patents that have been granted on it, already half a dozen in the US and others elsewhere, are compasses which cover a crystalline form of a psilocybin polymorph, which you know, just means it doesn't cover the, you know, the chemical compound psilocybin itself. It covers sort of a three-dimensional crystalline structure of psilocybin molecules when they're together in a particular type of formulation. Um, so like you know, the salt in your salt shaker is like a crystalline polymorph. Um, you know, it's not just the individual like atoms or molecules, it's when they're, uh, you know, uh, when they crystallize in a certain way. So it's like, um, it's when it's like can, when it's prepared or packaged in a certain way, you can, you can patent that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you, I mean, beyond even just a polymorph, uh, you could have different formulations for how it's included in, you know, a, a tablet or, a um, you know, a capsule or, you know, some other, type of, you know, drug delivery system. Mm -hmm. There's some applications that have been granted on, for instance, IV uh, uh, formulations of psilocin and psilocybin or transdermal formulations of DMT. Um, you know, these are things that have already received patents. Okay. So that's, I mean, in a way that kind of makes sense to me that like, again, thinking of like a pharmaceutical sort of analogy, you create the molecule, which is say like penicillin or something like that, or, you know, whatever it is, it's like a, it's an actual molecule. It's got a structure, chemical structure, all that. So there's that patent. If you've created that novelly, you can alter that and make it a powder, make it a liquid, make it a crystal. You can patent each one of those. And then you could say, mm -hmm. well, if you put it in, you know, a pill, that's another patent. If you put it in a, you know, like a cough syrup, that's another patent. So all of these things, in a way, that kind of makes sense to me. They're each sort of the thing that, so psilocybin, we're seeing patents on that kind of thing, changing the sort of 
you know, you have the, the mushroom or the compound that's in the mushroom. So you can take the compound out. So you can't necessarily patent a mushroom, but you could take the compound out and make it into a crystal formalized. And then that, that gets patented. Um, I heard about, I think, synthetic psilocybin as well. So is this just like, you know, you take the, you, you, you make the compound from a lab rather than extracting it from a, from a mushroom. This is my understanding. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the synthetic psilocybin, you know, the, the compound is the compound. So the, the psilocybin, if it's made in a lab versus extracted, if it's just a compound, it's going to be the same. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are applications on the process of synthesizing psilocybin, ah. for instance. So Compass and other companies have filed those types of applications too. So their method um, for, for making it in a lab. Method of making yeah. it, yeah, okay. and and many people just as shorthand might refer to like Compass's polymorph patents on psilocybin as synthetic psilocybin, but it's not just psilocybin that's synthesized, but it's this particular crystalline form that's made through a particular synthetic procedure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then formulated in a certain way. Okay, so so that's how people are going to be looking at the molecule side of it. Um, and again, that makes sense. Most, mostly, yeah. I mean, you know, a large bulk of the work that we do and, and many of the applications that I think we'll start publishing pretty soon from, from a number of companies and dozens of them already have and are, are new compounds. Mm. So uh, you know, new chemical structures that haven't been uh, before extracted from a plant or, or synthesized or ever appeared or been made um, that are novel compounds. Um, but they have, you know, the features of a known compound or are based on a known compound. So, you know, many, uh, and certainly if you know Sasha Shulgin's books, PCAL and TCAL, you'll know that like the, the basic scaffolds for most psychedelics are phenethylamines and tryptamines. So, you know, many of these new compounds will have those core chemical structures, um, but then with different sort of decorations off them that might give them, you know, different effects. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're less psychedelic or shorter acting or... Um, have greater antidepressant effect or less activity at a certain receptor, like the serotonin 2B receptor that people are trying to avoid. So there's you know, many features companies are trying to optimize for by making wholly new compounds. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, there will be uh, the types of patents that just cover the, you know, the chemical compound itself. Right. And it, I mean, for these, from what I've you know, read about it, a lot of these, we don't even necessarily know what they do. But you're taking a, you're, it's like a perspective, you know, you're taking a, you file a bunch of patents for a, a bunch of things that you think might do something in the hope that then with further research and whatnot, that you, you find one that, that will do something or will do what you're hoping it does. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the case certainly with almost every pharmaceutical patent on a, a new drug because of just the process of, um, you know, getting to uh, the point where you're putting it in humans. Um, you know, the, a patent is generally filed, uh, you know, before there's any public disclosure of the, the compound at all, right. before, you know, it's even, um, you know, ever, uh, you know, included in a clinical trial. So, you know, the, the earliest applications, maybe there's uh, tests against, you know, receptors to see if it has affinity or activity of particular receptors. And maybe they've put it in some behavioral assays. So in psychedelics, you know, people probably know about like the head twitch response so you know if you give a, a mouse uh, a, a drug and it sort of shakes its head um, then it's an indication that it might have psychedelic effects <laughs> it's in, doing something uh, yeah. in humans <laughs> it's doing something yeah. yeah and I mean you know there may be these compounds or you know 
bioassayed by some of the people in the lab that make them. But you know, certainly there's no real human data until many years after. Well, by bioassayed, you mean they try it themselves? <laughs> yeah, I think this is a <laughs> uh, you know something of a common uh, thing. You know, certainly once. Uh, People are confident enough that it's you're not going to have real safety or toxicity yeah. issues. But you know, with most of these uh, tryptamines and phenethylamines, you know, they're, they're similar enough, I think, to a known compound to expect. I mean, that was what what Sasha Shulgin did, right? Is mm -hmm. he made all these um, you know variations of known drugs like mescaline and then uh, tried them himself or tried them with friends. Yeah, yeah, I know that's. I think I'd, I can't remember where it was an article I read or a podcast I'd listened to ages ago where they were talking about this, you know, and and this creating all of these different derivatives, right, of, you know, you have the molecule that you know has a psychedelic effect. Well, what if we add a hydrogen here or take, you know, and you can kind of have a reasonable understanding of what that's going to do to the body or in the body if you if you understand these things. And then, yeah, they they did mention with a chuckle in the thing that I <laughs> was following that, like, a lot of times these guys try them themselves and, and see what happens. So, but again, this kind of makes sense from a Again, from a, like a prospecting sort of idea that, you know, you want to, these different molecules that could have a therapeutic value or whatever, you want to patent them before you sort of put all the money in or do at least some, most of the money, because you got to do a little bit of work up front to sort of find it. And then that all makes sense. Um, so tweaking the, the known molecules, creating new molecules. Uh, the thing that's for me, always the trickiest and something that I didn't really understand was, and as you were saying, you know, you could take a drug repurposing and you can patent that. So what I hear is that it sounds like something that I always thought was like the doctor's discretion, how, what the mm -hmm. dose is, how it gets used, who gets to use it. I just assumed that was the doctors would, would tell you that, but from what it sounds like, it's like, no, those, those types of things, those sort of methods or procedures or, you know, protocols that can be patented as well. Yeah, they, they can. And, you know, you put your finger on a controversy, um, around whether things that are sort of within medical judgment should be allowed to be the exclusive right of, a uh, you know, the, the company that owns the patent because doctors should be allowed to use, uh, you know, and exercise their judgment, you know, without having to, avoid doing something that they might think might be medically beneficial because it's covered by a patent. They might not have a license to. Um, and actually, some countries, you know, all across Europe, um, that controversy has played out a little bit differently than it has in the U.S. And certain medical use claims aren't allowed the way they are here. Um, but this does lead to some kind of odd incentives sometimes. So there's a somewhat notorious case, actually, of a cancer drug that was approved at a dosage that was considered actually worse than than certain lower dosages because the higher dosage that it was approved at had equivalent efficacy but caused greater toxicity and, and, and greater had greater safety problems but the the lower dose was known um, and wasn't patentable and so the company pursued fda approval of a dose that was higher than it should have been just because it was protected by a patent. So they thought they would have a monopoly on it Ooh. and be able to um, claim, uh, you know, higher profits because they could sell it protected by this patent. There's a, an article about um, this by Professor Robin Feldman. If, uh, people are interested in looking it up. Um, and, you know, this is one example, but there certainly are 
these kind of perverse incentives that fall out when companies you know really want to pursue profit and um, patent protection at the you know the expense of of other things and, and this is sort of beyond just the the kind of big question that sits behind all of this which is you know we started out by talking about the, the patent being a a trade-off between the sort of public and the inventor to encourage innovation so it raises a question of what type of innovation are we trying to encourage as a public like and because we have so many possibilities for these secondary types of you know patents on new formulations new dosing new uses for old drugs is is that the thing that we want investment to go into or do we really want new uh, therapeutics that have uh, you know real advancements in uh, the way that uh, they are able to provide uh, you know therapeutic benefits to patients rather than just uh, you know new type of formulation going from you know one uh, type of you know additive in a drug to a to another one pill shape to another yeah so that's a yeah that's a the question of incentives and but that comes down to what what is being allowed to be patented right so if we allow these patents to go th patents to go through people are going to be like the example you said they're going to they're going to chase that rather than coming up with something totally new um one thing that maybe it would be good to clarify and i'm completely naive to it is how does how does you know the medical approval process play into all of this like does the fda say in the us they approve a drug they say okay this is you can now give this drug or you can market this drug um so they will require you know certain data to do that and I know there's the, I think the acronym is REMS, and I'm not sure exactly what mm -hmm. that means. I can't, I can't remember what it means. But, but essentially, from my understanding of it, it's like you've shown that it's safe in these patients at this dosage, at this, you know, whatever, all of those things around that the FDA is going to ask the company to do. Um, so then that's what they can patent, right? Like once you've get, so once the FDA has given you that approval, you can then patent it. Or can you patent these things if they haven't, if the FDA hasn't said, you know, specifically this is a, I guess I'm asking in a roundabout way, what role does the FDA play in shaping where that line between, you know, you can patent it for this purpose, but not this purpose, or you get a patent for this purpose. Now the FDA has said, well, you can use it in this other one. I don't know. Is this making sense? Like, where is that line drawn, and and how? Yeah, does... I think I think it's making sense, and I, and I think maybe your view of it is almost too common sense. Um, in that, like, in reality, basically anything, um, can get patented, regardless of FDA approval, or regardless even of whether it does have, um, you know, ever shown any data behind it in any kind of clinical study, and. and just the same way that these like new compound patents are filed before they've ever been put in humans or often before they've you know, ever been put in any animal, um, some of these dosing claims or other types of claims can be filed based on um, what people refer to as prophetic examples. So you can say, oh, I think this would work for this population, or I think this would work if we gave it at these doses. And often those are pursued because that's where there's some novelty. So that's where there could be uh, you know, potentially a patent, but not necessarily because that's where the drug is going to work best. Um, kind of like the, you know, the, the cancer dosing example that I gave you. Um, and actually just 
this last week there was a um, sort of hearing between the FDA and the patent office to try to coordinate a little bit better about how they view things because there are sometimes are conflicts between them where a company tries to sort of play them both uh, differently um, and say certain things to one that they you know don't say to the other. So they'll say something is very similar to another product. For instance, it's already been approved, so you don't need to you know require extra data from us. But then on the same hand, they're arguing to the patent office, this is something totally novel <laughs> and you know, nobody else has done anything similar. Um, so there are certainly are ways that they can work together, but but generally they they really don't. Uh, you know, obviously when companies are filing patents uh, in the pharmaceutical space, they're filing ones that they you know hope will have value for um, an approved drug, and they use the FDA approval process to sort of create other types of exclusivities that the patents kind of play with um, from a strategic perspective. Um, but patents can be granted on things that are um, you know, something that would never be FDA approved or you know, certainly never have the um, data yet to be FDA approved. I, mean, you know, I think there was a patent that was granted maybe a year or two ago, uh, for example, on LSD for food allergies. Um, I don't think there's ever been a trial on <laughs> LSD for food allergies. Um, they wrote a sort of brief paragraph saying, you know, if you wanted to test to see if this worked, you would give LSD to people that had food allergies and you would expect that it would work for them. And that was enough for them to get uh, <laughs> patent claims granted um, on the use of LSD for food allergies. So, you know, it certainly doesn't have to be something that's right. even on its way to FDA approval. So then who's, and again, totally naive question that I never really thought about. So then who's granting the patents? Like who decides what is patentable and what is not? A, a judge? Like a very specialized judge? Or? Uh, well, in the first instance, it's a patent examiner. So, you know, there's um, in the U.S., uh, I think this is probably the same system most countries have. There, you know, there's a patent office that has a different, uh, in the U.S., they're called technology centers, and each one will have different art units. And in each art unit, it'll be a you know, specific type of area of technology. So maybe it'll be certain types of small molecule drugs that you know have uh, you know particular kind of functional relationship with each other that you know one person who's an examiner in that will be kind of an expert in that area and most examiners have a relevant technical background so they're you know, PhDs most generally or maybe masters in like an engineering or computer science uh, art unit um, and so they should be familiar with the technology um, of course it's a government and the government you know doesn't pay well compared to industry so many of them you know they they last a year or two and then a firm will sort of poach them and pay for them to go to law school um, to become a patent attorney and so there's you know a lot of turnover and there's a lot of uh, incentives at the patent office to you know not really examine they don't have much time to examine but also they're sort of rewarded for uh, granting patents r rather than kind of holding them back mm. um, and so uh, you know they, they don't spend the time to you know, really tell if something is inventive, but they're the ones, you know, who do, um, you know, if a patent ever ends up being challenged or if a patent examiner doesn't allow one, then it'll go up to either an administrative board, the patent office, or uh, if it's, you know, challenged adversarially to, you know, a judge in litigation. But, you know, usually it's just, a, uh, you know, a government uh, examiner who's, you know, just trying, trying to get through their day and through their stack of, uh, <laughs> you know, patent applications. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think it's like the the famous one. This is like where Albert Einstein worked, right? He worked at the patent office. That's whatever. I think that's like the only <laughs> yeah. thing that anyone's ever heard about the patent office. And even that, people would be like, "That's yeah. an obscure fact." What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, Thomas Jefferson actually worked as a patent. Okay, there you go. It's another another obscure <laughs> piece of trivia. Yeah. And, and Abraham Lincoln had a patent. Um, speaking of the founding fathers, but. But yeah, I mean, the patent examiners, you know, everything they do is public. It's all part of the examination file. And for any, you know, any published patent application or, or patent, you can see everything that they do. And so uh, you can see sometimes how poor of a job relative to how you would imagine patent examination should go when you're looking at whether something is novel and inventive. For instance, there was a patent granted last year on DMT vape pens. Uh, you know, it was only filed a year or two before that. I think most people are familiar with psychedelics and maybe familiar with DMT vape pens or the fact that you could use DMT in a vape pen and certainly wasn't a novel invention. And because patent examination is all public, you can see that this particular patent examiner only spent, uh, I think, seven or eight minutes doing a review for prior art. And the only thing they searched was prior patents. So there weren't any other, other patents on DMT vape pens. And Chemical Abstracts Plus, the service that just looks at sort of published scientific literature. And, of course, there was nothing in the scientific literature on DMT vape pens. And they didn't search Google. They didn't even do a search for, for vape pen or for, for DMT. They you know, just looked at the full name dimethyltryptamine in these databases and found nothing. And, you know, after, I think, less than eight minutes of searching, thought this was a novel uh, invention and, and worth granting a patent on. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we, we can certainly question and, you know, there are now and as there have been you know, every few years, a bill introduced to sort of give patent examiners more time and more ability and give the public more opportunities to challenge patents. And in the psychedelic space in particular, there's you know, a nonprofit organization that's trying to help patent examiners by submitting prior art or making prior art available so they won't, wouldn't do things like this um, as, as frequently. But, you know, it's kind of an ongoing problem uh, this you know, question of whether, you know, patents, even if the policy issues were sort of at the right levels and only true innovations were, were things that were worthy of getting a patent, you know, it's still hard for a patent examiner to know whether something, you know, even really is novel and inventive. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's maybe a little more nuts and bolts than I was expecting than maybe you were expecting, but I think it's, <laughs> I think it's worthwhile because yeah, it's one of those things that like you think about, and again, especially with this, you know, patenting methods or how a drug is used rather than, you know, the drug itself that it does seem a little squirrely. And we've given those examples of how, you know, companies are maybe abusing that, that process. So, when it comes to back to psychedelics, um, there's a couple questions uh, I, I have for you. The first is what sorts of things um, will be patented or, or people trying to patent? I think I heard that, you know, whether it's Compass or one of these other ones are looking to patent their method of uh, delivering the psychedelic therapy. So this comes down to the music that's being played for the patients when they're on their session, the dose of the psilocybin, what psilocybin is being used, that kind of thing. Uh, so we can maybe start there. And again, with the mind uh, in mind of the second question of being, how will some of these patents then affect how the therapy is rolled out? Like who, you know, the access to patients, because I think that's something that's important to mention. Uh, but we can get to that part after. Let's maybe 
start with the first is what what have you seen about what's being patented and maybe again how are how are these methods or or those kind of things you know looking to be patented yeah well i think maybe the application you're thinking of is a somewhat notorious one that compass had filed that published as a pct application including all these different methods for providing psychological support during psilocybin therapy uh, and, and some of them seemed somewhat laughable, which is probably how it gained controversy. And some of them seemed uh, dangerous almost, I, I might suppose people thought, or in the sense of what would happen if something like this was granted and would it keep other people from being able to provide this type of psychedelic therapy. And so, you know, the, the claims that I'm thinking of here were things like uh, giving a patient psilocybin in a you know in a, in a room with soft furniture and sort of muted colors and you know like a high definition sound system uh, you know on a, on a couch where they you know might hold the hand or the arm of the patient to comfort them or um, the patient might wear an eye shade I mean things that are typically can you know one might imagine if you've ever seen a room of what psychedelic therapy looks like you know certainly dating back long before the patent was filed and you know, probably right. in the 50s and 60s. Um, and so, you know, the controversy there was, well, you know, how can a company, any company, get a monopoly on providing psilocybin therapy, you know, in, in this form, since this is how it's you know, always been provided? Um, I think in that instance, you know, these are claims that very likely never would have been granted. I think it's interesting to think about them because it does kind of raise the question of, you know, what does it mean? for a patent to be able to provide these type of exclusive rights and maybe not in this circumstance but in other circumstances where something is potentially a little bit closer to being something that's inventive like could it still prevent uh people from being able to access therapy or access therapy in a way that's you know uh either affordable or the way that's the best in terms of their particular um, situation or that can provide the best outcome for them. Um, and so I think maybe going to your sort of second part of your question, like what would happen if these types of patents got granted? You know, one main difference between patents in the just pharmaceutical space generally and patents in the psychedelic space is we don't only have, or we won't only have, I mean, you mentioned Oregon, the ability to get psychedelics by going to a doctor and getting them FDA approved. I mean, in that case, you know, the patent generally covers what's sort of on the product label and, and as you say, the REMS. Um, but if one company is the only one that has FDA approval to, to sell the drug or to provide the drug in that form, you know, the patent will raise the cost of it, certainly, at least until a generic is able to come on the market. But it doesn't really do that much to other competitors because that, that company is the only one that has approval to do that to begin with. But with psilocybin and likely with other psychedelics, as we see Colorado, for instance, it's not just going to allow state-regulated access to psilocybin, but DMT and Ibogaine and, and, and mescaline and, and other states might go the same way. If companies have a patent covering psychedelic-assisted therapy, potentially they could use it or somebody else could use it if somebody else acquired that patent to prevent that type of psychedelic therapy being offered in, uh, you know, in, in sort of the state regulated markets. So like going back to this compass patent, if, if that had ever been granted, you could imagine they could 
you know, Sioux service centers in, in Oregon or in another state that we're trying to offer psychedelic therapy uh, with psilocybin or tell them, okay, you can offer it, but it has to be in a, a sterile clinical environment without soft furniture. And you're not allowed to, you know, hold the arm of your right. clients when they're, uh, you know, start starting to, you know, uh, feel uncomfortable. And so, um, you know, that's one, I think that the main differences between the just way that pharmaceutical patents are used and the way that patents on psychedelic drugs are used is the sort of broader landscape of potential ways that they can be used to, um, you know, sort of restrict the access uh, that people can have to psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this seems to me like a, like like a big issue because i mean i think it's you know we can have a whole discussion about whether you know psychedelics and everything should be legal and 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 all of that um regardless of what we think about that there is you know the therapy side of it which is what you know restarted this whole movement in psychedelics you know does it's not a it's there's still a lot of open questions and the data is still coming in but there's there's a signal there that there's a, a real it can help people. There's people who have been really mm -hmm. helped by this. So to, to have that restricted would be, you know, for a lot of us, you know, kind of a sad, sad way to go, or to have some kind of, you know, company that can say, well, you know, we're the only ones that are allowed to do it. Uh, so you got to come to us and we can pay whatever we want. And I think from the people on the outside looking at it, again, to, to, to say that you could have a patent on therapy or this therapy sort of method, which is very broad, <laughs> is is a little disconcerting. But that compass path, mm -hmm. that one didn't get didn't get approved then, right? Yeah, I mean that one. It's still pending. It's likely, you know, those claims would never have been approved to begin with, at least in that in that form. And you know, maybe they could have using compasses specific polymorphs, but not psilocybin in general. I mean, certainly, you know, something like that can sneak through every now and then. I mean, look at the DMT vape pen patent, for mm -hmm. instance. But, you know, the, the, there's so much public outcry. There, You know, and there are opportunities. Like I mentioned, there is this company, Porta Sofia, this nonprofit that's submitting prior art, and others can have the opportunity to do that. And certainly somebody would have challenged this or will challenge it if it gets to the point. And Compass has said that they're not going to pursue those particular claims. Um, but there certainly can be other... Uh, applications that are like this. I mean, I don't know that it's the best example, but for instance, that LSD for food allergies example. I mean, this would mean that if a, you know some uh, you know company wants to offer uh, treatment of LSD for food allergies, they you know they wouldn't be able to do it unless they had a license to this. And it's also a good, especially thinking of this kind of prophetic example they use, like they never did any research, they didn't even determine if LSD works for food allergies, how that kind of breaks down the sort of quid pro quo of the, the patent, because they didn't actually contribute anything. You know, they just had this idea, well, maybe it'll work and we'll get a patent on it. But then nobody can ever even determine if it works or provide that without sort of going through them. Um, and there are other uh, applications out um, now that are pending that could, you know, cover aspects of um, psychedelic therapy or could cover, uh, you know, potentially um, things that would diminish the sort of the value of therapy or increase the, the, the price of that therapy, you know, if they ended up being granted. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe not as dramatically as like that, the Compass one that would pretty much cover every every possible <laughs> form of, you know, typical 
uh, psilocybin therapy, but but things that can certainly sort of chip away at the you know overall um, benefit of it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's still at this point. We'll wait and see how it all plays out because we're still. You said like we you know we don't need FDA approval in order to get the patent, but. I think it's still a, a young enough space that we're seeing what will be what patents will be granted and then is it kind of too like once one gets granted other people kind of say oh well if that got granted you know we can we can do our little take on that or try and do a spin on that like do you see a sort of a rush of more patents patent applications coming in once a few start sort of getting accepted or is it just once the field is open people are I think it's probably the latter. I mean, most of this is just because the way the patent system works is patents are granted to the first to file. So there's sort of a race to the patent office. Um, so, uh, you know, I think three years ago or two years ago when the space was really starting to open up was when the big rush of, of patents were all filed. Also, patents are kept secret for a year and a half. And so by the time somebody sort of learns of something that's in a patent, um, and especially by the time somebody learns of that, that, whatever it is, is going to be successful, which might be, you know, three or four years after a patent application was first filed, you know, it's kind of too late to copy it with a, you know, a similar strategy. Probably somebody else right. has, has already done that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, hundreds of applications and surely the number will, you know, keep, keep growing as more published and as more still get filed. I mean, in the, in the cannabis space, uh, you know, I think you know, looking at a graph of the number of applications filed, you know, when cannabis first became legal for medical use in the 90s, you know, there were a handful of applications and they started getting filed uh, in kind of greater number. And then in the sort of 2010s, after adult use states started opening up, there were, you know, hundreds and thousands more. And I mean, now there's tens of thousands. And there's probably in cannabis more sort of ancillary technologies and things. So there's a greater number of types of applications that can be filed. But, um, the number in the psychedelic space is uh, a little bit mind-boggling <laughs> sometimes, um, but it's you know it's it's good work I suppose for a, a patent lawyer, <laughs> yeah. um, uh, trying to keep track of them all. But uh, but it's uh, you know a unfortunate situation, um, trying to find ways to navigate them if it's you know somebody who wants to practice uh, something in the space and is even thinking about patents. I mean, you know one of the concerns too is generally with pharmaceutical patents, the people who are at the end of a patent litigation, you know, sued or to whom a you know enforcement action is ever brought, are generally other pharmaceutical companies, so generic companies. Um, but because there's so many patent applications in the psychedelic space that have been filed on aspects of therapy, and because most companies or people who are potentially infringing those could be, you know, a service center or facilitator in you know a state like Oregon. You know, what does that mean for the potential of them infringing a patent or having, you know, being sued on a patent? Um, and in other spaces outside of, you know, pharmaceuticals, there's a lot of concern with patent trolls who bring, you know, really small patent suits um, just kind of for nuisance settlements. But, you know, they might be, you know, tens of thousands of dollars because it's still cheaper than, you know, retaining a, a patent litigator to try to, you know, fight a case. But, uh, there's been issues in states where, like, you know, mom and pop shops or have been, you know, sued for, for patent infringement. So that's, you know, a concern here is it's not necessarily just going to be big pharmaceutical companies suing each other where they have, you know, 
certainly enough money to have patent lawyers, um, but uh, potentially, uh, you know, people who are having their business, uh, you know, being able to continue threatened by uh, having a, a patent case brought against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot to, yeah, a lot to think about. And I still, <laughs> it still seems so, so wild west in a way, you know, like a gold rush. Everyone's kind of rushing in to try and you know, get their, get their plot of land and, and stake out a claim in this space in the hopes that there's gold there. Um, and yeah, that could leave, you know, like I said, I think the concern for a lot of people is, you know, is this going to put some of this therapy out of reach? What you just mentioned, you know, you would have smaller, maybe nonprofits, something like that. People who really want to, you know, help people and, and give people this experience in a safe way, in a, in a, you know, meaningful way. And then all of a sudden, you know, the lawyers show up at the door and say, well, no, 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 you can't, you got to shut this whole thing down or pay for a license to do this thing. So those are kind of some of the issues, I guess, for it. And we can start, start wrapping this up. Uh, it's been a great, a great conversation. Um, what do you see? You know, we kind of mentioned the the therapy, the molecules. What are some things that you see that maybe we haven't thought of that might be that have been patent applications are coming in or, you know, some actually like truly novel things? You mentioned VR and, and stuff like that. Like, what do you what have you seen uh, in that these sort of ancillary technologies that are truly novel, that could be an interesting space where patents are going to start coming out? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And, and, you know, the thing that keeps me, I think, excited to wake up every morning is, you know, who, what new type of technology am I going to read about? Or, you know, what, what new inventor will I have the you know, privilege of, you know, working with? Um, I think, you know, a lot of the, the you know, the, the, these types of new technologies that are exciting are probably going to be the sort of next wave of, of patents to, to publish in this space. I don't think there's, um, you know, all that many yet that, you know, the, the sort of first rush, the part of the gold rush was really on, um, you know, compounds and ways of using the known compounds. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's, there's going to be, uh, especially as people start to experiment more with, you know, how can we really administer psychedelics in, in ways that are different? I mean, I, you know, there, there hopefully will be lots of opportunities to, uh, you know, sort of go outside of just the, the standard models as like Oregon um, builds a kind of robust, uh, you know, psilocybin services uh, industry and as like Colorado does and, um, Hopefully there'll be you know, lots of ways that people are finding to, to use psychedelics in, in novel ways. And, and hopefully these applications too won't be the, you know, the ones we're concerned about where, you know, one, one company sort of monopolizes the, the ability to, to do something, but hopefully they'll truly be able to encourage, uh, you know, real innovation in, in ways that doesn't um, you know, prevent others from, from doing that too. But. I don't have any specific examples, I suppose. <laughs> it's a very long way of yeah. saying that. Okay, so I'm, I'm assuming it's because you're working on a bunch of stuff that's all secret and we'll find out soon enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have to bite my tongue on a yeah. few things. But, uh, but yeah, the 18-month secrecy period is, uh, is a long Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. No, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. And, and I think that is like as places sort of, you know, it feels like there's these, you know, Oregon, Colorado stuff there will it is going to be kind of like a bit of a testing ground right and then we'll see 
what people come up with <laughs> and you know see how it all goes and i mean there's a lot of i know that, that that kind of maybe way of putting it makes people a little wary but um you know maybe some of the people we talked about at the beginning the professors that discouraged you from you know maybe they don't want to see a psychedelic testing ground in this in the next state over but i think it's that's the kind of stuff these ancillary technologies where we can see the incentives for the patents being you know working in the way that they were supposed to right to come up with truly novel novel stuff which would benefit the public or benefit people in in this space right this sort of like we said this kind of tic tac you know getting a bunch of patents or making a real you know mess of patents so that you know smaller competitors can't get in you know that's kind of the the pharmaceutical companies and people have been doing that big companies have been doing that for ages but it would be interesting to see some truly novel stuff some truly innovative stuff uh yeah come out of this space but i guess we'll have to see yeah i mean i think some of the truly innovative stuff to come out won't be necessarily around the inventions themselves, but the way they also get incentivized. So ways of using incentives other than just the patent system or w ways of being able to obtain funding to you know, pursue an idea to you know, bring some kind of proof of concept to, you know, together, enough funding to do that. That doesn't come from just saying you have a patent application filed and you know, raising VC funding or raising a small amount of funding. So I think there's you know a lot of innovation there that looks like it's happening too that is I think exciting to watch, um, but but yeah I mean I'm I'm happy in general just to see the types of innovations that are going around the psychedelic space. Well I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we were able to connect because yeah like I said I think it's a it's an area of this whole movement you know everyone's really excited a lot of people are really excited about this um, you know the th the therapy and then just you know the sort of for those want to be able to experiment with things or have these experiences without fearing the law. You know, there's all of that uh, great stuff. But this, I think, is an important angle to it that not many people in the public have thought about. And it's something that, yeah, I mean, you know, nonprofits that are helping to, you know, keep some of these patents, you know, these these large patents from getting approved by providing the prior stuff. Uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's important. So. Thanks for thanks again for kind of breaking this down, and maybe we can connect again in the future when there's something more. This was sort of the let's just say this was the patent basics episode, and maybe we can get into something deeper next time. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'll just give you the last word. If there's something uh, you'd like to say, or that you think we could, you know, we should uh, tease for next time, or something like this. Well, I mean, I mean, I, I, I do think uh, having another conversation about this and however long it takes for um, some more topics to sort of gather some steam will be a really good one. Um, I don't know that I have any last words. I mean, one thing that I like to turn back to often is, uh, you know, a, a saying that's been repeated many times by the Supreme Court and by, by sort of other commentators that you know, the patent system is a creation of society. You know, patents aren't natural rights like we have in the Bill of Rights, like, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's something that society decides to grant, and it's something that society creates as a, you know, a trade-off between this exclusive right the inventor gets and the, uh, you know, the invention itself be between the public and between the inventor. Um, and because of that, it means that, the, you know, the public should have a, a big say in what is inventive and what should be granted a patent. 
and there are ways for you know people who are concerned about these issues to to get involved you know there was the hearing that i mentioned that happened last week with the fda and uspto that invited you know comments from from folks um there is port sophia like i mentioned and they um are always looking for people to contribute prior art or to participate on a um, kind of a research uh, task to find prior art for a, a patent application or a particular subject. And um, you know, there's, there's always bills that are in Congress um, that are looking to find ways to kind of remedy certain deficiencies in the, in the patent system or in particular types of bad patents. And so there's, there's always ways for people who are interested to, you know, to find, to participate in, um, you know, changing the patent system for the better and, and really making it a, you know, a creation of society as people say that it is, even though generally the people sitting at the table are, you know, big pharmaceutical companies and big tech companies, but, uh, you know, there's ways to pull up other shares to that table and participate too. Yeah. Great. Uh, and I mean, yeah, like you said, if it, like your uh, story shows, if it's if you have an interest in the area, um, stick with it, and you never know what what will happen. There's there's jobs out there. There's there's paths to find. Yeah, I mean that, that's the one thing that always uh, surprises me, but keeps me excited about the psychedelic space itself is just how sort of interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary it is, and how many ways it has of um, you know finding. Uh, jobs and interesting things for for people who, who bring things uh to it so so yeah i think that's right and yeah i mean I, i'm sure you'll put it in the intro or outro or show notes but i'm i, I should say myself i'm certainly happy if anybody wants to contact me directly um, to talk about patent issues or psychedelic patents or anything psychedelics um so i would invite that too all right great well thank you again for for joining the show yeah, thank you very much for, for having me. It was a pleasure, and I do look forward to the next time. All right, once again, big thanks to Graham Pachenik for coming on the show. And as he mentioned at the end there, there's lots of ways to kind of be involved in this space. So you can follow him on Twitter, uh, which is at Calex Law, which is spelled C-A-L-Y-X-L-A-W. That's at Calex Law, C-A-L-Y-X-L-A-W. And the website is the same, just the name calexlaw.com. Uh, so feel free to follow along with uh, what he's doing and what he's up to. As always, follow us at 2 bread for you Instagram, Twitter. Send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. And please, please, please rate, review, subscribe, wherever you're getting your podcasts. That always helps us out. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you later. Bye for now. <laughs>